listening to First Church Charlotte. with the disciples. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. I want you to notice Jesus was leading and they were amazed. Now they were not amazed that he was leading. There was an amazement upon them to the context. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Then he took, or let me read, and as they followed, they were afraid. They are on an emotional roller coaster. They go from amazement to fear. How many of you have ever lived that in your own life? (laughs) Okay. Then he took the 12 aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to them. This is the third time he's told them about Calvary. In verses 33, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, scourge him, and spit upon him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. So uh, I want to teach from this context of Scripture. Before you're seated, smile at your neighbor and say, I expect lots of loud amens from you. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Tell you guys a funny story. I was talking to Carol before church. She was helping me work the door next next door. And uh, she told me about sending a a message I had taught to one of her friends who's real intellectual. And she thought it might be something that he could. He's the kind of guy who takes notes when he watches or listens to something. And so she sent it to him. And after she talked to him later, he had questions for her. And one of the questions is, right here, the preacher is trying to rally the people and nobody's saying amen. He said, what's up with that? So I want you to know you're in trouble. (laughs) You were supposed to be saying amen there. And uh, even the unchurched think you should be saying amen there. So (laughs) having fun, no offense. All right, so we are looking at this uh, chapter in the book of Mark. We have been journeying through Mark. Uh, It is a very beautiful, beautiful gospel. It is the first gospel written. It is largely the story of Peter. John Mark serves as a narrator, uh, a voice, shall we say, that tells Peter's story. And so if we remind ourselves of this place in the scripture, they've already come through a, a whole pressurized sequence of events. They have gone in a very short period of time from events as dramatic as seeing uh, the transfiguration on the top of the mountain. That's pretty dramatic. They come down from the mountain. Then there's demons they cannot cast out. You you remember the story. Jesus tells them uh, for the second time that he's going to be uh, basically a sacrifice. He's going to die. And then there is the rich young ruler who comes and And wants to have a discussion about eternal life. The Lord offers him a way that is 
congruent with living toward eternal life. And for him, it was too much. He goes away sorrowful. The Lord talks about the problem of wealth and how it can serve as a substitute deity, or shall I say, a substitute pursuit of meaning in our lives. And he warns against that, admits it's hard for the the, the wealthy to be saved, but says, hopefully, with God, all things are possible. And they... Remember, the children are brought to Jesus. The disciples are trying, perhaps, to edit who has access to him because days are short. He's saying he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. He rebukes them over the children. You you guys remember all of these things compressed into a very short amount of time. And the Bible gives us this picture that they're they're going up uh, from this one place where they are. They're heading to uh, uh, another uh, part of the country. And they are... Conversely, amazed and afraid. You see, as long as the uh, prophecy of death to come and trials to come is in a distant future, then they can kind of put it off. But once Jesus starts walking toward Jerusalem, you know the end is nigh. You know that his word is going to be fulfilled. Jesus is not one to exaggerate to his disciples. He's not one to lie to his disciples. If he says it, they can count on it. And now he begins walking toward Jerusalem. They are amazed and then they are afraid. Isn't it amazing? They are amazed and then they are afraid. Uh, There is something about commitment in somebody's life that is the single greatest testimony to everything they claim to represent. In other words, we can say this and we can say that, but the, you know, rubber meets the road. That's what really impresses people. And so imagine someone says, I am going to give you a million dollars. And they're saying this to you. Well, that's one thing. But the moment they pull out their checkbook, you get this idea of, oh my goodness. Do you see? It was one thing to talk about it. But when they pull out the checkbook, you get the first thrill. Why is this really happening? How many of you have lived through something where there was this sense of, is this really happening? It's one thing to talk about things. It's something to say, you know, someday I'm going to do this for God. But then when you put a date on it, So Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I am going to be crucified. My death is not going to be an accident. It's going to be purposeful. It is for you. I must suffer these things. You can imagine this is one thing to be told, but then Jesus takes the turn on the road that goes to Jerusalem. It's no longer someday. It's soon. And this is this sense of amazement, as though he wasn't just talking, was he? He's really going to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't just threatening, was he? He wasn't just preaching, was he? Us preachers can sometimes be guilty of getting a little caught up when we're preaching. 
and saying, my Lord, I'm ready to fight every demon in this town. No, you're not. You're just talking tough. You can't even deal with your, with your wife when she's mad at you, and you're talking about how you're going to fight every demon in town. No, you're talking tough. It's easy for preachers to talk tough. Even, yea, behold, humble, lowly Nate can be guilty of talking tough when I preach, and then you walk out of the house where everyone was worshiping, and you face the problem, and you face the dilemma, and the weight of what you were facing is no longer a praise line in the service. It is something you're going to have to live. And life sets heavily upon your shoulders. You can shout all day long, but when you get a call from the doctor late at night, it will make your heart raise a little bit, shall we say. It's as though that anxiety, it's one thing when it's just a praise line. It's something else when you actually do it. I was, I'll never forget, many of you guys know, and perhaps I I don't mean to over uh, tell any personal example in my life, but the closest thing that I have experienced like this is when I, I, you guys know I'm a cancer survivor. And so when I was diagnosed, that's one thing, you know, it's terrifying, it's scary. Uh, But the first time you walk in to get chemo, it is a horse of a different feather to mix your metaphors. <laughs> it is a whole different level. And I'll never forget after I finished, it was the sense of anticlimactic. And I was, I was making myself sick. I was so scared. I had no idea what to expect. It's one thing to tell your wife, honey, it's going to be okay. We're going to be strong. Feel that muscle. I'm a real man. I can take whatever they throw at me. And then they, 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 they show up with the first bag of chemo and they have gloves on up to their elbow. And they, I, you ask them, don't ever ask them if you are in this situation. It's not, you don't want to know, trust me. So if you're ignorant like me, you ask them, why are you wearing gloves up to your elbows? And they say, I, and, and you say, surely it's not that big of a risk, you know? And they say, oh, that's not to protect you. That's to protect me. Because if the chemo gets on my skin, it's going to burn me really bad. And you say, and you're putting that inside of me? It's going to burn me really bad on the inside. And they're like, sorry. I'm not kidding. It's one thing to talk tough and posture for your friends. Oh, you know, it's life. We're just going to be strong. And then they bring the bag. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, the disciples have been talking about Calvary, and all of us have to get used to an idea, right? No one's excited the first time you hear about sacrifice. Nobody. If you act like you are, you're just being dishonest with yourself. Nobody is. And their first response is to just to reject it. It's to go straight into denial. It's like the stages of grief. And Peter says, no, Lord, you're, you're, you're lost in a false doctrine, Lord. Far be it from you to do this. And the Lord says, get thee behind me, Satan. That's denial. What's the second time they hear it? Uh, <laughs> fear. The second time is fear. They're afraid. The third time is this moment we find in the scripture where there is both awe and there is fear. You know what you want to call that? That's called acceptance. Because when you accept it, it feels a whole lot like awe and fear mixed up in a witch's brew and then poured all over your head. And so here you have this, this one you followed for three and a half years. This one who has healed the sick in front of you. I don't mean in some vague way. He's raised the dead in front of you. The, the lame have leapt 
praising the Lord. The blind eyes have opened. He has fed the thousands in front of you. There's no other religious teacher like this. There's no other prophet like this. There is never a man spake like this man. And he tells you, I am going and they're going to crucify me. And your first react is no, absolutely not. And your second act is depression and fear. And your third act, when you finally accept it, is this strange mixture of awe and fear. That's where the disciples are, walking toward Jerusalem. And Jesus does not leave them hanging to face their emotions alone. He reminds them of reality. Somebody say reality. And promise. Somebody say promise. That's my job as a preacher right there. Every time you come in the house of the Lord, you're facing any number of things. There's troubles in your life. There's disappointments in your life. There's pains in your life. My job is not to lie to you. My job is not to deceive you. My job is to show you reality. But God help us if we just stop with reality. We have to take an acceptance of reality and set it beside an embrace of promise. Because that's the story of the faithful right there. Will troubles come? Somebody say yes. Will difficulties come? But that's not the end of the story. On the third day, I'm going to raise up out of that tomb, Jesus said. And so it is in all of our life. Hear me, person who is hurting right now. Weeping endureth for the night, but joy comes in the morning. If you're struggling with circumstances, if you're struggling with loss, if you're struggling with your health, hear me today. Weeping endures for the night, but the sun is coming up in the morning. There will be joy in your... Don't just accept reality and take pride in how you accept reality. Also take pride in how you embrace promise. Yeah, I'm facing a tough circumstance, but I'm wrapping both arms around the promises of God. And I'm saying three days later, we're coming out of this grave. And so on this road, Jesus, Jesus, of course, gives them a retelling of the troubles to come. And I am going to review those with you. Um, and I think there are, I think prophetically, uh, they are beautiful, beautiful. Now in the actuality of Christ's suffering, they are horrible and terrible, but prophetically they are beautiful because it means something. You will remember the power of the symbol in faith, the power of the symbol in our walk with God. And so the children of Israel followed a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It's the symbol. Uh, There's a rock that follows them and that rock was Christ. It's the symbol. And so it is that in the very uh, sacrificial of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are the symbol of my redemption and your redemption and every one of us needs redemption. Can I have an amen? Uh, before I get into that though, I want to point out something that I, I saw really for the first time uh, uh, this morning and I, it, it kind of, it, it, I thought it was a beautiful uh, example, a teaching example and to show it the best way possible, uh, I'm going to read these same scriptures, uh, 
of Mark 10 and at verse number 32. But rather than reading in the King, the New King James, as I read earlier, I'm going to read it in the New Living because it makes it easier. It says the same thing, but it makes it a little bit easier uh, to understand the point I am wanting to make. So I'm going to read verse 32 in the New Living Translation. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. All right, I want you to see something here. Uh, there is in all of our all of our uh, spiritual journey, there is the call of the Spirit to you uh, individually. Um, you really, we, we believe we believe in the universal priesthood of the believer. We do not believe that any believer needs to go through a man in order to have access to God. Um, and that is very much a Protestant belief. And we, we are very much in that, that river of Protestant um, heritage in the terms of the theological progress and understanding of the Scriptures once people actually had access to the scriptures. But we don't believe anyone has to go through a priest in order to know God. You cannot, as, as sad as this may be uh, to some, you cannot know God through me. Does that make sense? Can I have an amen? Um, uh, who's the most spiritual person in your life? Um, who is the best prayer warrior you know. I hope all of you have those relationships in your life. Uh, I hope you have relationships in your life of people who are ahead of you on the faith journey and people who are behind you on the faith journey. If you have no one ahead of you on the faith journey, you are trying to serve alone. You are a spiritual nomad. It's not the will of God. God created the church as a place of protection and fellowship for the believer. You need to have people who are ahead of you. Uh, and if you don't, then you are nomadic, spiritually nomadic. And you need to have people who are behind you. If you don't have people who are behind you, then you are spiritually selfish. There, I said it. I don't mean to be offensive, but if you don't have anybody coming behind you who you seek to help, who you seek to, uh, to love, who you seek to... Um, uh, speak faith to, you are a very, very selfish, selfish Christian, and you're missing the greater call of what it means to be a Jesus follower, okay? Uh, if you don't have anybody in your life that you feel like is in some way uh, behind you, then you are not making an effort to have somebody um, who you are reaching out to. Uh, you would be stronger, therefore your obligation is upon you. Um, you can be a great winner of souls right inside a church. Do you see what I'm saying? What do I mean by that? Churches have layers of people who are always moving. People are going through very difficult times. The same person who a few months ago was super strong, they might be barely making it today. And if you have any spiritual sensitivity, if you have any, shall I say, uh, responsibility, a soulful responsibility to care about other people. You develop this sensitivity to where people are at and you are looking, you want to be the conduit through which encouragement flows to somebody else. If you cut off relationships with people who aren't quote unquote as spiritual as you, you are not near as spiritual as you think you are. Amen, Brother 
Nathan. That was some fun. My goodness, that was just mm, deep, deep, deep. Don't cut off relationships with weak Christians. If you do, you're the one who's weak. You need to know what you believe. You need to know where you stand. You need to know what you do in your life to worship God and to be a witness for God. You need to know that. And once you can settle and get a strong foundation, you are willing to open the floodgates of your heart to other people. And just because they're struggling doesn't mean you struggle. Okay, I don't have time to get on this, but I want you to see this this moment in the scripture. Jesus is leading who's coming behind Jesus. The disciples. Who's coming behind the disciples? The crowd. This is always the way it is. No matter where you are, Jesus is ahead of you. You aren't even close. And no matter where you are, there is people following behind you. If you don't have a sense to those who are ahead and those who are behind, then you are not a connector of men and women's hearts to a Savior that's always going to be leading, always going to be calling, always going to be beckoning us. A church is a great collection of people who are following after Christ. Some are ahead, some are behind behind, and there is movement all the time. People in various seasons, various temptations of their life, various struggles. They were the strongest person in the youth group, but then they're a young adult and they're struggling because they're dating someone who's a non-believer. That same person was a strength of the youth group, and now they're struggling as a young adult. If you cut them off, This is my heart. That's why I'm standing on it. I want you to feel this from my heart. Then you're saying, remember, the same measure we meet, it is meted out to us. You're saying the next time I'm weak, I deserve to be cut off. If you heard them out, what you're saying is the next time I disappoint, I am the one who should be herded out. That's not the way it is. The church is a great collection of people following after Christ as he goes to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, he's going to die for us all. At Jerusalem, he's going to pay a price no one of us can pay, and we're all going to fall short. None of us can stand at Jerusalem. They all forsook him and fled in Jerusalem. But no No matter where we are, there's somebody further back. And if you can't see that, you're going to do what Peter did. And you're going to go back to the fishing boat. And Jesus is going to show up and he's going to say, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Some people think Christianity is only staring at Jesus and ignoring the crowd that follows in fear. But Jesus puts you between him and the crowd because without you, there is no connection. Peter, as flawed as you are, as impulsive as you are, Peter, I put you between perfection and failure. I put you between the offering you can never offer, the sacrifice you can never be, and a crowd that only knows fear and confusion. You're between us. So quit looking at you. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my lambs. And Peter gets the message. This thing is not primarily about me. (laughs) 
This thing is primarily about the redemptive work that is open and available to whosoever will. And if I can be a part of that redemptive work, I'm going to have to always be that hope, that light, that reflection between the perfection of Christ that none of us are going to achieve. None of us, not even you. None of us are going to achieve that. And behind you is this crowd of fear and confusion. And in between, that's your place of ministry. So when you get into the idea that I can't be a minister because I don't know enough, what you're saying is there is nobody behind me. I might as well not even try. There's nobody that knows less than me. I might as well not even pray. There's no one that has less faith than me. I might as well not even give. I might as well not even volunteer. There's nobody less blessed than me. Folly, 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 foolishness, ignorance, and folly. If you'd like to write that down, I think it's a beautiful illustration of what I'm feeling at the moment. There is always somebody with less than you. How do I know? The poor you have with you always. The spiritually poor you have with you always. Quit looking at the one Don't get this wrong. I'm not saying stop looking at Jesus as our hope and our doctrinal foundation. I'm saying stop comparing yourself up and then saying I have nothing to offer because I can't be a perfect lamb. That's not the point. The point is Jesus walks toward Jerusalem and we who know what is happening, we're filled with awe. He's doing it. He's not just another religious leader who talks tough. He's not just somebody making big claims and then disappointing. He's not a politician. (laughs) Forgive me. He's really going to Jerusalem. I'm going to follow him. I can't believe what I'm seeing. He could call the angels of heaven and be a king. I can't believe that the only one who actually has power is laying it down to win through love. I'm filled with awe. I can't believe it. And behind me is a crowd of people who don't understand. They haven't heard the words. They haven't had the teaching. All they have is fear. As a church, we are always a layer cake. (laughs) We always are. There is the call, the mission the high calling of Christ Jesus that fills us with awe, that sometimes is so magnificent we feel unworthy. And behind us is the crowds. They are poorer spiritually even than those of us who think we are poor. We cannot fall into the temptation to despise the crowd. We can't fall into the temptation to look down our noses at the crowd. We can't see the crowd as the enemy. We have to see ourselves as that necessary uh, interlocutor, that necessary ambassador. You're the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. That between his purity and his holiness and his untouchable majesty, there is us, a lot more flawed, a lot less knowledgeable, certainly less power, and we're following him, and they're following us, and 
Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. You see? I think this, this image, this image of the walk to Jerusalem is powerful. I think it is meaningful, at least to me, because this is really a picture. I'm almost done. This, is, this really is a picture of what spiritual leadership becomes. It becomes not a small group of perfection, because that's delusion, You see what I'm saying? It is this endless making of disciples, this endless series of investments in people who we know nothing about what they are going to do for God. We have no bargain where if you do for us, we'll do for you. There's no religious quid pro quo. There is only bread of the Spirit cast upon the waters of humanity and the promise that we embrace that it shall return after many days. What will the crowd do? They will do what crowds have always done. They'll be self-centered. They'll be fearful. They'll be whimsical. They'll be unast- uh, they, they will. They will make every mistake there is to make twice. They will. That's the crowd that doesn't make them our enemy. Some of them will shout Hosanna. And some of them will shout, crucify him. That doesn't make them our enemy. How do I know this? We see the example of the one whose place we can never feel. Jesus Christ himself going, carrying a cross to that place of the skull. And he looks at the crowd. He looks at the anger. He looks at the anger. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The crowd is never our enemy. The crowd is our purpose. And so, uh, I used up all my time talking about that. So let me, let me finish with a real quick review of his prophecy to them. He says, first of all, that he will be betrayed. He's referring to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. It is fulfilled. We'll read about it when we get to Mark chapter number 14. Uh, that was supposed to be a place of justice. And in the place of justice, This holy one of Israel receives no justice. He will be condemned, referring to death, and he's delivered to the Gentiles. Uh, We'll read about that in Mark also when we get further into the passage. Referring to the Romans, they alone had power of capital punishment in the land. The Jews did not have power of capital punishment. He will be mocked. They will treat him with contempt and they will ridicule him. This is a fulfillment of prophecy and this is a fulfilled, we'll read about in the 15th chapter of the book when we get there. He will be scourged, whipped, punished severely under the Roman method of scourging. A person is stripped. They're tied in a bending posture to a pillar or stretched on a frame. A scourge is a uh, leather, uh, a whip made of leather thongs weighted with sharp pieces of bone or lead and then beaten across the back. They are given 39 stripes save one because in the statistical measurements of the Roman legions, uh, 40 stripes usually killed a man. Uh, In Jesus' case, uh, he's going to be crucified before he has time to die from the scourging itself. He will be spit upon. This is fulfilled. Uh, 
he will be killed. All of this we will refer to when we get to chapter 15 of the book or Matthew chapter number 20. And finally, lest you think it too heavy a sad story to bear, we will read in Mark 16 how on the third day, he arose. Just as he said. Death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your power? This one born of Mary carried all the hatred of a generation and all the sins of the human story. Buried them in a borrowed tomb. Someone said, why did he borrow a tomb? Well, why buy something you only need for three days? You don't buy something you need for three days. You go down to the little tool rental and you rent that sucker. He borrowed a tomb and he buried all of our sins, all of our errors. And on the third day, the angel met weeping Mary and had a very profound question that is true to whoever asks it. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has arisen just as he said. So this is what I want to end with. Resurrection is not a surprise if you've been listening. And I want to say to all of you in your troubles... You got some troubles. I want to say to you right now, victory should not be a prize if you've been listening. Let's all stand. Amen. Trying to get on your good side, quitting before 8.30. Lord, God bless. I pray your blessing upon these people. God, I pray you would anoint them. I pray you would keep them. I pray that you would gather them, gather their hearts. Make us one as a community of faith, oh God. As a church, make us one. Lord, I pray against everything that would try to turn our attention that is so importantly focused on the call ahead of us and the seekers behind us, the promise ahead of us and the needs that are behind us. Oh Lord Jesus, help us to be the ambassadors of your promise to a world that desperately needs uh, testimonies of that promise. In Jesus' name I pray, keep your people and by your word, in Jesus' name we pray and let the church say amen. Amen. God bless you all. We love you. Have a great week. Greet one another in the name of the Lord. We will see you Sunday. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive. Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. and Bible Study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.